Chapter Two, Part Two of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley, by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Two, Part Two. The wagons. Malone waxed very exultant over the supper. He laughed aloud at trifles made bad jokes and applauded them himself, and, in short, grew unmeaningly noisy. His host, on the contrary, remained quiet as before. It is time, reader, that you should have some idea of the appearance of this same host I must endeavour to sketch him as he sits at the table. He is what you would probably call, at first view, rather a strange-looking man, for he is thin, dark, sallow, very foreign of aspect, with shadowy hair carelessly streaking his forehead. It appears that he spends but little time at his toilet, or he would arrange it with more taste. He seems unconscious that his features are fine, that they have a southern symmetry, clearness, regularity in their chiselling. Nor does the spectator become aware of this advantage till he has examined him well, for an anxious countenance and a hollow, somewhat haggard outline of face disturb the idea of beauty with one of care. His eyes are large and grave and grey. Their expression is intent and meditative, rather searching than soft rather thoughtful than genial. When he parts his lips in a smile, his physiognomy is agreeable. Not that it is frank or cheerful even then, but you feel the influence of a certain sedate charm, suggestive, whether truly or delusively, of a considerate, perhaps a kind nature, of feelings that may wear well at home, patient, forbearing, possibly faithful feelings. He is still young, not more than thirty. His stature is tall, his figure slender. His manner of speaking displeases, he has an outlandish accent, which, notwithstanding a studied carelessness of pronunciation and diction, grates on a British, and especially on a Yorkshire ear. Mr. Moore, indeed, was but half a Briton, and scarcely that. He came of a foreign ancestry by the mother's side, and was himself born and partly reared on foreign soil. A hybrid in nature, it is probable he had a hybrid's feeling on many points, patriotism for one. It is likely that he was unapt to attach himself to parties, to sects, even to climes and customs, it is not impossible that he had tendency to isolate his individual person from any community amidst which his lot might temporarily happen to be thrown, and that he felt it to be his best wisdom to push the interests of Robert Jared Moore to the exclusion of philanthropic considerations for general interests, with which he regarded the said Gerald Moore as in a great measure disconnected. Trade was Mr. Moore's hereditary calling. The Jareds of Antwerp had been merchants for two centuries back. Once they had been wealthy merchants— but the uncertainties, the involvements of business, had come upon them. Disastrous speculations had loosened by degrees the foundations of their credit. The house had stood on a tottering base for a dozen years, and at last, in the shock of the French Revolution, it had rushed down to a total ruin. In its fall was involved the English and Yorkshire firm of Moore, closely connected with the Antwerp house, and of which one of the partners, resident in Antwerp, Robert Moore, had married Hortense Gerard, with the prospect of his bride inheriting her father Constantine Gerard's share in the business. She inherited, as we have seen, but his share the liabilities of the firm. And these liabilities, though duly set aside by a composition with creditors, some said her son Robert accepted, in his turn, as a legacy, and that he aspired one day to discharge them, and to rebuild the fallen house of Gerard and Moore, on a scale at least equal to its former greatness. It was even supposed that he took bypass circumstances much to heart, and if a childhood passed at the side of a Saturnine mother, under foreboding of coming evil, and a manhood drenched and blighted by the pitiless descent of the storm, could painfully impress the mind, his probably was impressed in no golden characters. 
if however he had a great end of restoration in view it was not in his power to employ great means for his attainment he was obliged to be content with the day of small things when he came to yorkshire he whose ancestors had owned the warehouses and the seaport and factories in that inland town had possessed their town-house and their country seat saw no way open to him but to rent a cloth-mill in an out-of-the-way nook in an out-of-the-way district to take a cottage joining it for his residence and to add to his possessions as pasture for his horse and space for his cloth tenters a few acres of the steep rugged land that lined the hollow through which his mill-stream brawled all this he held at a somewhat high rent for these war times were hard and everything was dear of the trustees of the field-head estate then the property of a miner at the time this history commences robert moore had lived but two years in the district during which period he had at least proved himself possessed of the quality of activity the dingy cottage was converted into a neat tasteful residence of part of the rough land he had made garden ground which he cultivated with singular even with flemish exactness and care as to the mill which was an old structure and fitted up with old machinery now became inefficient and out of date he had from the first evinced the strongest contempt for all its arrangements and appointments his aim had been to effect the radical reform which he had executed as fast as his very limited capital would allow and the narrowness of that capital and consequent check on his progress was a restraint which galled his spirit sorely moore ever wanted to push on forward was the device stamped upon his soul but poverty curbed him sometimes figuratively he foamed at the mouth when the reins were drawn very tight in this state of feeling it is not to be expected that he would deliberate much as to whether his advance was or was not prejudicial to others not being a native nor for any length of time a resident of the neighbourhood he did not sufficiently care when the new inventions threw the old workpeople out of employ he never asked himself where those to whom he no longer paid weekly wages found daily bread and in this negligence he only resembled thousands besides on whom the starving poor of yorkshire seemed to have a closer claim the period of which i write was an overshadowed one in british history and especially in the history of northern provinces war was then at its height europe was all involved therein england if not weary was worn with long resistance yes and half her people were weary too and cried out for peace on any terms national honour became a mere empty name of no value in the eyes of many because their sight was dim with famine and for a morsel of meat they would have sold their birthright the orders in council provoked by napoleon's milan and berlin decrees and forbidding neutral powers to trade with france had by offending america cut off the principal market of the yorkshire woollen trade and brought it consequently to the verge of ruin minor foreign markets were glutted and received no more the brazils portugal sicily were all overstocked by nearly two years consumption at this crisis certain inventions in machinery were introduced into the staple manufactures of the north which greatly reducing the number of hands necessary to be employed threw thousands out of work and left them without legitimate means of sustaining life a bad harvest supervened distress reached its climax endurance overgoaded stretched the hand of fraternity to sedition the throes of a sort of moral earthquake were felt heaving under the hills of the northern counties but as is usual in such cases nobody took much notice when a food riot broke out in a manufacturing town when a gig mill was burned to the ground or a manufacturer's house was attacked the furniture thrown into the streets and the family forced to flee for their lives some local measures were or were not taken by the local magistracy a ringleader was detected or more frequently suffered to elude detection newspaper paragraphs were written on the subject and there the thing stopped as to the sufferers whose sole inheritance was labour and who had lost that inheritance 
who could not get work and consequently could not get wages and consequently could not get bread they were left to suffer on perhaps inevitably left it would not do to stop the progress of invention to damage science by discouraging its improvements the war could not be terminated efficient relief could not be raised there was no help then so the unemployed underwent their destiny ate the bread and drank the waters of affliction misery generates hate these sufferers hated the machines which they believed took their bread from them they hated the buildings which contained those machines they hated the manufacturers who owned those buildings in the parish of Briarfield, with which we have at present to do hollow's mill was the place held most abominable gerard moore in this double character of semi-foreigner and thoroughgoing progressist the man most abominated and it perhaps rather agreed with moore's temperament than otherwise to be generally hated especially when he believed the thing for which he was hated a right and expedient thing and it was with a sense of warlike excitement he on this night sat in his counting-house waiting the arrival of his frame-laden wagons malone's coming and company were it may be most unwelcome to him he would have preferred sitting alone for he liked a silent sombre unsafe solitude his watchman's musket would have been company enough for him the full-flowing beck in the den would have delivered continuously the discourse most genial to his ear with the queerest look in the world had the manufacturer for some ten minutes been watching the irish curate as the latter made free with a punch when suddenly that steady grey eye changed as if another vision came between it and malone moore raised his hand shoot he said in a french fashion as malone made a noise with his glass he listened a moment then rose put his hat on and went out at the counting-house door the night was still dark and stagnant the water yet rushed on full and fast its flow almost seemed a flood in the utter silence moore's ear however caught another sound very distant but yet dissimilar broken and rugged in short a sound of heavy wheels crunching a stony road he returned to the counting-house and lit a lantern with which he walked down to the mill-yard and proceeded to open the gates the big wagons were coming on the dray-horses huge hoofs were heard splashing in the mud and water moore hailed them hey joe scott is all right probably joe scott was yet at too great distance to hear the inquiry he did not answer it he's all right i say again asked moore with the elephant-like leader's nose almost touched to his someone jumped out from the foremost wagon into the road the voice cried aloud ay ay devil all's right we've smashed em and there was a run the wagons stood still they were now deserted joe scott no joe scott answered Burgatroyd, Higgins, sykes no reply mr moore lifted his lantern and looked into the vehicles there was neither man nor machinery they were empty and abandoned now mr moore loved his machinery he had risked the last of his capital on the purchase of these frames and shears which to-night had been expected speculations most important to his interests depended on the results to be wrought by them where were they the words we've smashed em rang in his ears how did the catastrophe affect him by the light of the lantern he held were his features visible relaxing to a singular smile the smile the man of determined spirit wears when he reaches a juncture in his life where this determined spirit is to feel a demand on its strength when the strain is to be made and the faculty must bear or break yet he remained silent and even motionless 
for at the instant he neither knew what to say nor what to do. He placed the lantern on the ground, and stood with his arms folded, gazing down and reflecting. An impatient trampling of one of the horses made him presently look up. His eye in the moment caught the gleam of something white attached to the part of the harness. Examined by the light of the lantern, this proved to be a folded paper, a billet. It bore no address without. Within was the superscription, To the Devil of Hollow's Mill. We will not copy the rest of the orthography, which was very peculiar, but translated into legible English. It ran thus. Your hellish machinery shivered to smash on Silver Moor, and your men are lying bound hand and foot in a ditch by the roadside. Take this as a warning from men that are starving, and have starving wives and children to go home to when they have done this deed. If you get new machines, or if you otherwise go on as you have done, you shall hear from us again. Beware! Hear from you again? Yes, I'll hear from you again, and you shall hear from me. I'll speak to you directly. On Stilbrum Moor you shall hear from me in a moment. Having led the wagons within the gates, he hastened towards the cottage. Opening the door, he spoke a few words quickly but quietly to two females who ran to meet him in the passage. He calmed the seeming alarm of one by a brief palliative account of what had taken place. To the other he said, Go into the mill, Sarah. There is the key, and ring the mill bell as loud as you can. Afterwards you will get another lantern and help me to light up the front. Returning to his horses, he unharnessed, fed, and stabled them with equal speed and care, pausing occasionally, while so occupied, as if to listen for the mill-belt. It clanged out presently, with irregular but loud and alarming din. The hurried, agitated peal seemed more urgent than if the summons had been steadily given by a practised hand. On that still night, at that unusual hour, it was heard a long way around. The guests in the kitchen of the Red House were startled by the clamour, and declaring that there must be some bit more nor common to do at Hollow's Mill, they called for lanterns and hurried to the spot in a body. And scarcely had they thronged into the yard with their gleaming lights when the tramp of horses was heard, and a little man in a shovel hat, sitting erect on the back of a shaggy pony, rode lightly in, followed by an aide-de-camp mounted on a larger steed. Mr. Moore, meantime, after stabling his dray horses, had saddled his hackney, and with the aid of Sarah the servant, lit up his mill, whose wide and long front now glared one great illumination, throwing a sufficient light on the yard to obviate all fear of confusion arising from obscurity. Already a deep hum of voices became audible. Mr. Malone had at length issued from the counting-house, previously taking the precaution to dip his head and face in the stone-water jar, and this precaution, together with the sudden alarm, had nearly restored him to the possession of those senses which the punch had partially scattered. He stood with his hat on the back of his head, and his shillelagh grasped in his dexter fist, answering much at random the questions of the newly arrived party from the Red House. Mr. Moore now appeared, and was immediately confronted by the shovel hat and the shaggy pony. "'Well, Moore, what is your business with us?' "'I thought you would want us to-night, me and Hedmond here,' patting his pony's neck, "'and Tom and his charger. "'When I heard your mill-bell I could sit still no longer, "'so I left Bolpy to finish his supper alone. "'But where is the enemy? "'I do not see a mask or a smutted face present.' and there's not a pane of glass broken in your windows. Have you had an attack, or do you expect one? Oh, not at all. I have neither had one nor expect one, answered Moore coolly. I only ordered the bell to be rung, because I want two or three neighbors to stay here in the hollow, while I and a couple or so more go over to Silver Moor. To Silver Moor? What to do? To meet the wagons? 
the wagons are come home an hour ago. Then all's right. What more would you have? They came home empty, and Joe Scott and company are left on the moor, and so are the frames. Read that scrawl. Mr. Hellstone received and perused the documents, of which the contents had before been given. Hm. They've only served you as they serve others. But, however, the poor fellows in the ditch will be expecting help at some impatience. This is a wet night for such a berth. I and Tom will go with you. Malone may stay behind and take care of the mill. What is the matter with him? His eyes seem starting out of his head. He has been eating a mutton chop. Indeed. Peter Augustus, be on your guard. Eat no more mutton chops tonight. You are left here in command of these premises. An honorable post. Is anybody to stay with me? As many of the present assemblages choose. My lads, how many of you will remain here, and how many will go a little way with me and Mr. Moore on the silver road, to meet some of the men who have been waylaid and assaulted by frame-breakers? The small number of three volunteered to go. The rest preferred staying behind. As Mr. Moore mounted his horse, the rector asked him in a low voice whether he had locked up the mutton-chops, so that Peter Augustus could not get at them. The manufacturer nodded an affirmative, and the rescue party set out. End of chapter 2, part 2